Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is Susan Olesic. You can connect with Susan at the two organizations that she is very active in, the Enneagram Prison Project and the Human Potentialists. The websites are each linked in the show notes. You can also connect with her on LinkedIn. And every episode, I raise awareness for an organization of my guest choice. And Susan has selected her own organization, Enneagram Prison Project. I am highly confident after listening to this conversation, you're going to see the efficacy and power of the work that Susan is doing. And I hope that you join me in donating. This is also linked in the show notes. What I love most about Susan's work is that she sees the very best potential in people. And I'm really drawn to the healing work that is done in prisons because many times folks who are behind bars are in marginalized populations. They are people of color, come from low income families and probably dealt with a lot of trauma in their upbringing. And based on what Susan has shared with me, folks who are behind bars are actually a lot of times the hungriest to do the work. Susan shares that a lot of times when she does work in corporate settings, which is another place where she does Enneagram work, there's more resistance to diving in than folks who are behind bars because folks who are behind bars are already really hungry for solutions. They've already met their wit's end. I love the dichotomy that Susan breaks down between the boardroom and prison. And based on her experience, a lot of the challenges that folks are dealing with aren't that different, which is why I think that she can really see the highest potential in all people. We're really cut from the same cloth. A lot of times it's just the wounding and the suffering that we have been through that causes expressions of us to come across differently. And the Enneagram is actually a personality typecasting, a tool for self-awareness that I wasn't so familiar with before having this conversation with Susan. So it was really fun for me to explore what the Enneagram is and how it helps to build self-awareness. When we develop and cultivate self-awareness, we are so much more empowered to be at choice in our life. And when we are at choice in our life, we can actually live into our potential, which is Susan's mission. So with all of that said, Let's settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this beautiful conversation with Susan Olesic. Susan, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Thanks, Mike, for having me. I'm so happy to be with you. Yeah, I, I always, there's a special place in my heart for folks like you who have a certain profile. You've you've made a lot of appearances, and you didn't have to answer the random email outreach that I made. But when your organization was brought into my field of awareness, I thought, even if she doesn't answer, I just want to let her know. I want to let Susan know because she's running any grand prison projects that it's work that feels really aligned for me. And it's it's such a privilege to be able to have someone like you on the podcast. So I'm really grateful that you said yes. And I'm excited for all the places we're going to go today. Oh, it feels like such a kind way to start. Thank you. I also like to take the opportunity to say 
for anyone that happens to be listening, if you have ever written to me and not heard from me, it's not because I, I am not wanting to respond. It's because I have three different emails and running two different organizations. And it's just, I know your Mike's nodding at me. I can get buried. And I, this one, I think, did get buried for a minute. And when it, I uncovered it, especially when I dropped in and listened to you, I, it was a, it's an easy yes. It's an easy mm. yes. So thank you for in, including me. Mm. Well, you know, because maybe listening to an episode or two of mine and because I, I gave you a little bit of warning before we jumped on that I start my interviews in the same manner. And because I'm so interested in what you're like as a child, and, and I think that the dinner table is this incredible portal into what your family system was like, what your family dynamic was like, I love starting the conversation by asking, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Yeah, I love that question. I think it's an insightful one that you do ask. I, I think the dinner table was like the fascia of my childhood, you know, the connective tissue. It's what held us all together. Really, it was a, as a as a fixture in the day, something that was always going to happen. It was uh, something that we shared together. And I think early on, there was a lot of chaos around that. We were, my father was a single dad for a, a, quite a while and we all prepared the dinner. So I did that at a really young age. And you can imagine what it's like when a seven-year-old is in charge of the dinner. There are a lot of family jokes about that. But as we got older and then as my father remarried and we had a lot more order in our life, it became more of a point of connection and like a calibration kind of, for me, I'm a, we'll get right into the Enneagram, I'm sure, but yeah. with a social instinct, which just means that I pay attention a lot to my family. And I think for me, it was like a calibration point where, where am I in relation to my people? And, and in that way also is, you know, definitely I'm the youngest of four, it was a hierarchy, a striving to keep up. There were some pain points, but it's something that I I really needed that helped me that I love that I reproduce in my own world and my own family. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, and I, I know that you're the mom of three boys. And actually being a mother is what prompted you to dive into the Enneagram, right? So I, I would love to just get right into it and, and talk about what the Enneagram is and, and what brought you to the Enneagram. Yeah. What is the Enneagram? I mean, I think we'll unfold that as we go. I didn't know what it was. I I did have a really good girlfriend who has always just felt a few steps ahead of me in, in terms of healing and things like that. And she had identified someone that she was working with that she said was just a really good active listener. I didn't even know active listening was a thing. And so I happened my way into a parenting class because I was and still am the kind of person who always wants to be better at whatever I'm doing. There's a lot of striving in my life. And so in this, par in this parenting class, the instructor used the Enneagram and wove it into, into parenting. So that was my first introduction. Mm -hmm. And you are, I, I would love to go, I'll just give you a, a window into my mind a little bit of, of what I think would be, would make for a magnificent conversation today. I'm actually not all that familiar with the Enneagram. So I think it'll be helpful for me. I only this morning, even though my, my Zoom name right now has that I'm a nine, I only this morning learned that I was a nine. I, in preparation for today's conversation, I've done a million and one personality tests, but for some reason, I never did the Enneagram until today. 
And one of my best friends in the world, who was a former guest on my podcast, he's a three. And I asked him yesterday, what do you think I am? And he said a nine. And so I, I learned today that I'm a nine. And one of the hallmark qualities of a nine, or at least my understanding, you'll, you, you have way more expertise about this than I do, is that I can see myself in a lot of the other qualities. So I say all this to say, I think it's really interesting to learn about the different Enneagram types and what the gifts are. And what I see as one of the gifts of Enneagram in my brief experience with it is that it highlights the wholeness and goodness of all different types of people, that there isn't a best or worst, that rather we all kind of support each other in, in our greatness and that there's nothing wrong with anybody. And I've, I've heard you speak to that. So just illuminating all the different types of personalities and where we make choices from head, gut, heart, we're all in integration of a lot of it. But I think it's a fascinating tool and technology to understand our personality and to understand consciousness. And then taking a deep dive into why this work is, or why Enneagram has been so suited for doing work in prison, because I think I, I'm really passionate about healing. Like healing to me underlies a lot of our path forward in many different arenas. It could be around farming, nutrition, social justice, climate change. Like if we are, if we feel a sense of wholeness and, and healing within us, then that seems to me the path forward and prison is a place that's sorely lacking. So I want to do a deep dive around that. And there's many other places we'll go to. So given all that, I would love to just explore what are the nine different types? What are their strengths? What are maybe shadows of those qualities or, or types rather? And we'll go from there. How's that sound? Sounds delightful. I want to say, I really like what you just did, Mike, which is you you led with your own not knowing. And I think as someone who's in charge, this is your turf, right? You you don't have to do that. And that says something about you that I believe you. I don't, Mike and I don't really know each other for everybody who's listening, but we're about to. And I I believe you that you're about healing because we can't always start with knowing like this Buddhist concept of a beginner's mind is a is a really important place to start. And it's it's lots of ways I think is the only place to start. So I love knowing that you just found out you're a nine and I don't know how you landed on that, but, or if that's actually true, because of course there's lots of types that look like each other. And sometimes people spend a long time in one territory and then realize, Oh, that's maybe my entry point. That's not actually where I am. And I'm not saying I don't feel you as a nine because you, you used this word wholeness again and again, as you were speaking, and it's actually one of the, what we call the essential qualities of the nine. It's one of the gifts, one of the things that nines can't help but to be. And that's the essence of the type. And and so I feel that about you, not only in the podcast that you have, but in the way that you described what you understand the Enneagram to be, right? Which is like this, everybody's included in it and no one's above or below. And that is the the way the nine perceives the world. That's the way, that's the sensibility that the nine reminds the rest of us about. And other types don't have that primary knowing. They have eight other ones, right? So we all come for each other. And I, I always 
what I love so much about knowing the Enneagram and being with other people who know the Enneagram and know themselves is when we come into all the meetings of my life are really with the Enneagram Prison Project or teaching the Enneagram. They're always some way about the Enneagram. And in every meeting, people drop in and they say their type and they say, we say kind of where we are, how uh, we above the line or below the line, meaning how, how present do I feel to myself? And by knowing how somebody perceives the world and the gift that they're here to bring, I can listen to them with that I don't know if it's an expectation, kind of like you, you know, something in a way that I don't know it. And yeah. now that I know that I, you know, that you're a nine, I'm going to listen for that because I know I've got a different bias and, and I also have a different thing that I know. So anyway, it's a long winded way to say, I, I like what you did and I, I'm happy to weave in the nine as we go in, in all the places. Yeah. So let's start with, I know that you're an Enneagram one. And I am a nine, at least based on the tests I took. I, my, my secondary is two and my tertiary is four or whatever that's worth. But I know that one, eight, and nine are the, the gut-centered Enneagram type. So I'm wondering if you could just describe, we share that. I'm wondering if you could describe eight, nine, and one. Absolutely. I think that for anybody that's new to the Enneagram, it's helpful to know that we have three different ways that we get our information. And what Mike's talking about is this one one of the three, which is the gut center of intelligence. Some people call that the instinctual center. And that's the like the filter, the thing that's constantly running and our attention is first sort of how we how we glean things in that way. And one of the primary instincts that we have is anger. And anger is an alarm system that is really important. It helps us to know if things are fair or right, if everyone's been included, if we're getting what we need and what we want. And if we're not, you'd you'd hope that a little bit of irritation or anger or even rage, depending on the thing and how big a violation it was or how unfair it was, you'd hope that that would come up. So eight, nine, and one, are organized around this gut center of knowing, which is knowing something without thinking, without even feeling necessarily like I just know. And sometimes it's it's a little bit hard when you're not a gut type to, to honor when people are saying, well, I just have this thing and it's important that we all take a beat because I know, but we do know that. And and so that's what what connects the eight, nine, and one together and how they are filtering and responding to the world. And each in their own way has a dynamic with anger. So type eight is the type that expresses the anger, the core emotion of that triad most readily. And so we call eight the boss, the protector, and we can talk about eight. And type nine, so tell me if this resonates for you, Mike, is the type that tends to deny their anger. Often are surprised that they're in this triad in the first place and you're laughing already. Well, it's very true for me. And I've had, I come from a lineage of men where the anger was readily expressed. And so what I think it's, in some ways, it's natural in my temperament that I'm I'm a more reserved and gentler personality. And I, I, I'm being on the receiving end of anger, I've also made the somewhat conscious and probably largely unconscious choice that anger is bad because I've been on, on the receiving end of not so healthily expressed 
anger. Right. And so I, it's probably, it's this amplifying thing where I, I have a natural temperament where I would probably move away from conflict, away from anger. And I've been on the receiving end generations back, not just with my parents, but uh, many generations back probably of unhealthily expressed anger. So it's like deeply internalized within me. It's been a large source of my work around letting anger actually guide me, like what you're explaining, that it can signpost me to what matters, to, to what I care about. Right, right. So, so many things in, in what you're sharing, Mike, that there's a lot in us that's, when we think about these different centers of intelligence and the the emotional alarm systems that are underneath them for eight, nine, and one, the instinctual intelligence and this alarm of anger, that's in everybody. Everybody has one of those systems and the other two also, which we'll describe. And we also have a whole set of conditioning and childhood that we come up through. And that's that's the beginning of the formation of the personality and the extent to which we we were really allowed our own instincts and had them validated will kind of paves the way for how much we can we can be attuned to them. And sometimes we did we didn't get a lot of support for that when we were small. So we had to do a lot more work to get rid of the conditioning and to be able to listen to ourselves more fully, which I I feel you've done a lot of that. So nine is the type that denies the anger. And then the last type in this triad is type one, which is the type that represses or suppresses that anger. I think both things are going on. And so that's the dance. And this is the cool, I think, helpful thing about the Enneagram is that that pattern of one type expressing, denying, and repressing the core emotion of the center of intelligence is repeated for the heart types and also for the head types. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So I would love to go there and and just to reiterate, because like I said, I'm, I'm learning here too. So the eight, if they all have headline, I know there's lots of descriptors that you could use for all of them, but the eight you said was the boss was one of them. What are the other? Or the, or the protector, right? And these are just names. There are lots of them, but I, I tend to put a couple for each one. Type nine, we call the mediator, sometimes also the peacemaker. Type one, we call the idealist or the reformer. And so that's those three. Would it be helpful to talk about the other two before we go deeper in the body? Yes, type? please. Yeah, we also call them body types, instinctual types. So all of these things kind of get inter- interchanged. And and then if you move um, from the top of the Enneagram down to the right, types two, three, and four are what we call the heart center, the, the emotional center, the feeling center. And these are the types that are filtering the world from the emotional operating system. And this is the thing about the heart is the thing that lets me know, are we connected? Do you see me? Do you get me? Do you, do you feel me? Do you, do you like me? And ultimately, do you love me? And everyone, whether you are a two, three, or four, or not, has a heart, just like everyone has one of these instinctual centers, this body, right? But when when you don't see me, when I don't feel like you get me, when I don't feel like you love me, there's like this upwelling of emotion, this alarm system that's going off in the heart. And it's um, it's distressing. It's there are, no one really agrees on one word. It's, it can be very sad. It can feel like panicky and 
underneath that, if it often has a lot of shame associated with it, like what's wrong with me that we're not connected. And so just like we're talking about for the heart types, sorry, for the body types, type two is a type that tends to repress that grief or that shame. And type three is a type that denies it. And type four is a type that tends to express it most readily. Okay. And the head type, the head types are five, six, and seven. Right. Five, six, and seven. So two, we call the giver or the helper. Three, we call the performer, the achiever. And four, we call the uh, romantic or the individualist. Mm -hmm. So for the head center, the thinking center, these are types five, six, and seven on the left side of the diagram. And the driving emotion here for these types is fear. If we're honest, it's, it's not just fear, it's really terrifying, right? These are big, big alarms when, when these core needs are not met. And so type five is a type that represses this fear and six is the type that expresses it and type seven is the one that denies it. The, the fear is under, underlying this motivation of wanting to know what can I trust? Who can I trust and where are we going? And the head types are, are really wanting to understand that so that I can so that I can relax my alarm systems and come back to this thing that they they have in common. Five, six, and seven have a, a real extraordinary GPS that is not like a bookish information, although it can be that, but it's like a clarity, a knowing, a an awakeness, if you will, and a real clear understanding that only happens when I'm really, really connected to myself. So when I don't feel that, I, that kind of clamp down is like, that's when the anxiety and the, the fear can take over. And, and, and that's the dance for, for the head types. Mm -hmm. And the, and the five, six and seven are named what? Five we know as the observer, or I, I like even more the investigator. Type six, we <laughs> the, the names for six are a lot about the six, the the loyalist or also the skeptic. Sometimes they're called the loyal skeptic. And type seven, the epicure and the enthusiast are what we need. Beautiful. So there's there's obviously a lot of depth to the Enneagram that we in 20 minutes or so we couldn't possibly cover all of it, but just on a really practical level, where would you invite folks to take, there's there's probably a bunch of different assessments out there. What, what do you think is the most rigorous assessment that someone could take? Well, I just happened to look up Enneagram test very recently, and I was astounded how many tests there are these days. So I'll, I'll first say I'm not a huge fan of tests. I think they kind of can get you in the right territory. And then the fine tuning and the really parsing apart, which one do I look like and which one am I really take some studying of the system. But I really like the the nine paragraph test from David Daniel's book, The Essential Enneagram. And I also really like Riso Hudson has an online test and the it's called the Ready. And you can take that on the Enneagram Institute website. I think both of those are really sound and will point you in in a good direction. And the second, so I got David Daniels, the essential Enneagram, and, and the second one was. The second one is called the Ready Test, the R H E T I, Riso Hudson Enneagram Type Indicator. And you can find that on Enneagram Institute's website. And that is the one that I took that indicated that I'm a nine. So, okay. And so, what I, what I would ask you, what I would ask anybody who just discovered their type is what. 
what is the thing about these qualities of unity and being and wholeness that you resonate with? Because that's that's the sweet spot. That's the part that we know that the nines are here to come to teach the rest of us. And I, it's no surprise to anybody that I'm a real lover of humanity. I feel like part of what we do in Enneagram Prison Project and all the places I work with the Enneagram is sort of insist that people fall in love with all the nine types. And I have a nine in my life. That's my oldest son who I adore. And I, I, when I say those three words, I think of him because he, me makes everyone feel okay even sometimes at great cost to himself but that's that's the the way of the nine is to really remember the thing that you highlighted that we are everyone's around that circle everyone matters do you relate to those words yes yeah and i actually i heard a conversation that you had and a story that you told about your is brooks is his name is that yeah. right <laughs> yeah and and the story, while while it probably hasn't exactly happened to me, you told a story about how Brooks was walking out the door. He had his basketball shoes on, was going to practice, and you asked him something, and he put everything down and kind of not abandoned himself, but he he was thinking like I'm gonna be here for my mom because she asked me a question, and was fully present there with you. He he was through the door already, came back, listened to you, and. He put everything down to show, like, I I want to respond to you fully. That resonates deeply with me. There's also, I think if I were to encapsulate all of this into a, a short sentence, we all belong, like everyone matters, everyone's important. That feels, or maybe there's a bright spot in every single person and every single thing. I've never had to work hard at all. I've never had to work in, in any way to feel that to be true. Even when I hadn't done any inner work yet, I feel like I, I naturally moved towards optimism and that people are good. And all my favorite stories highlighted people are good. So that element resonates a lot with me about being a nine. There's also, my friend brought this into my awareness that the nine sees themselves in everyone. <laughs> that I, I, when you on a different podcast appearance described in detail all of the nine Enneagram types, I felt that could be me too, actually. I'm a little bit of an idealist. I'm a little bit of a skeptic. I'm a little bit of this. I'm a little bit of that. And the, the ready R-H-E-T-I test I took this morning <laughs> indicated almost exactly as such that I was really low on being an eight. So the the boss and maybe challenger energy is is low because I really am, I've avoided conflict, but I've, I tested pretty highly in every other category because I'm a little bit of everyone. I'm very easy to get along with. I, I have a lot of the hallmark qualities of a nine and mm. peace really matters to me. Inner peace, harmony, belonging, like those words all really, really, I could say them over and over and over again, and they feel really true for me. Yeah. And and they feel really true just in your, like how you comport yourself and just how I'm, I'm experiencing you real time right now too, Mike. So for the record, and I think this, this bright spot that you see in every person and the way that you bring that optimism in, in your purview, I think that's like you said, it's I, I don't have to work at all to do that. That's when we know that that's the essence of the type. In fact, you have to try not to do that, right? So when in that example, when 
my son is walking out the door and he's actually late as part of the story, right? But he takes the time to come back and has time for me. What we're we're now we're in the sort of the paradox that happens for all the types is that if that's true, that I have a real, I have really space for everyone in my life. We want to make sure that the nine is including themselves in that statement. And oftentimes that's the beginning of where we cut off from ourselves because we, we make it okay for everybody, even though he's late for something. So what is he missing for Brooks that he's, you know, making space for in me? And we want to make sure that that part gets balanced out and that there's a dilemma like that in nine different ways. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you, if we were sitting down having a session, I would be curious about what's the origin of that? Like, how do we begin First of all, do you relate to that? How there's a cost sometimes about prioritizing everybody and, and leaving yourself out. Yes, I felt that felt true in my family dynamic for sure. I have. It's interesting, but when when I was talking to you about this nature quest that I did with All Kings, which is an organization that also does incredible transformational healing work with men who are formerly and currently incarcerated. I, I did a weekend with my dad and the, there was an exercise we did where we wrote down our three biggest core limiting beliefs and two that resonated the most with me. I don't even remember exactly what the third one was, but one was there's no room for me and the other was nobody gets me. And I actually had this conversation with my dad where I opened up to him about how I felt that my needs were always, I'm one of two kids and my parents are married. So it was four of us. And I felt like my mom, my dad, and my sister all had to be taken care of before I could be taken care of. And that was a way that I oriented to conflict in the family too, is that my okayness depended on my mom, my dad, and my sister being okay. And so over time, I certainly lost my sense of self many times over, including my initial career choice, which was largely based out of fear. I wasn't considering what do I want? It was based on what do my parents think I should do? And given my limiting beliefs I have about myself, what am I good at? So what's been reinforced for me or what was reinforced for me a lot as I was growing up is I'm really smart. So that was actually an intellectual intelligence, good with numbers. And I, I really oriented to safety and stability. So my initial career path was in accounting. And in my mid-20s, I'm 32 now, in my mid-20s, I got to a point where I think it all came to a head where it was like, I can't believe I've never thought of this before, but what do I want? What do I want in my life? And so I I think that as you beautifully pointed out, that's probably the number one challenge that I I imagine this would resonate with any nine, that my okayness depended on everyone else in my family's okayness. And therefore, almost every decision I made was based on how is this going to be perceived by the other people around me, which when done consciously is a beautiful thing. And when done unconsciously, it feels like I'm being jerked around by everyone else's desires without stopping to take care of myself. Right, right. So many things that you're pulling together in this one 
big share of the work that you're done that you've done with your dad very recently. So I'll just say the the basic building blocks of personality come from our early childhood that we all come with these essential qualities about us. And I have three kids, you know, you, you are describing how, how this quality has kind of always been there with you as part of your, your family dynamic. And the other, the other thing about what I want to say, I'll, I'll say we, we come essentially good, become essentially whole, become essentially all the, all these different things. And then we, we have a temperament that's, that's about us, right? So there's a, an inborn animal nature that we can't help. And that is the way that we express this quality. So there are three types that are more on the withdrawn energy in terms of temperament. And there are three types that are very assertive. And there are three that are kind of in the middle. And nine is the type that is more on the withdrawn side. And that's just makes sense, right? If I'm going to keep the peace, I'm not going to do it with an, you know, a lot of reward, <laughs> but sometimes it's, it's, it's necessary. It's needed. So this, the way that we come into the world, there's a nature part and there's a nurture part and the essential quality and the temperament are the nature side. And the the rest of it is the nurture. So when we meet our parents, now we're in a dynamic with someone, ideally, if the, the person who is in charge of raising us, our nurturers, our protectors, which is often mom and dad, but not always, Ideally, they would see us, they would feel our energy, they would sense, if you were a little nine, they would sense your withdrawn, gentle, easy nature and not come at you too hard. But I've never met anybody where that dynamic has gone perfectly. And most of us come with our own childhood baggage that we haven't unpacked. And, you know, I definitely didn't understand myself when I was raising my first babies. I think that's we all get the do over when we become grandparents. And so that dynamic of how much or how little we're able to attune to the child that's in front of us is the is the real place where that childhood message starts to happen. And for you, there's no room for me. Nobody gets me. This is, you know, could be some innocent slight or it could be a real trauma that you experience. But either way, it becomes your belief. And so the the work of Don Riso and Russ Hudson and the book, The Wisdom of the Enneagram is really the foundational curriculum that I've worked with everywhere. And talk about this basic fear. And for nine, the basic fear is of the loss of connection. Mm-hmm. The sense that I, I would lose contact with my mom or my siblings or my dad. And, and so unconsciously, the basic desire is just to have the thing that I I already have, right? That's already embedded in the essence that I have. So for type nine, the basic desire is just to be at peace. And when I can take a beat and be with myself, I can remember, I actually bring wholeness and unity to everything. I can't help but to do that. And we forget. And the the way that I forget in my heart for type nine is like going into this inertia. Like I just sort of go along to get along and don't really say yes, avoid conflict and I get stuck in my head that way. And I can get stuck in my, sorry, I get stuck in my heart that way. And I can get stuck in my head by daydreaming and like being in sort of my, my happy bubble and not really engaging with the things that are going on around me. So I'll just say this last thing around conflict, which you keep bringing up, like, of course, I avoid conflict because it feels like if I were to be in conflict, then I would lose contact. And that's the the growing edge for the nine. Hmm. Hmm. 
this this feels like a good time to segue into the work that you're doing in prisons. And I, there's, I think there's lots of facets that I want to discuss because I love the way that you talk about there's physical prisons and people who have committed a crime who are in jail, but there's also the prison that we all are in, in our minds a lot of times. And it, it's been really interesting to hear you talk about how usually, maybe not usually, but a lot of times the folks that you work with at corporate organizations, there's a, a, there's more resistance and less of an immediate buy-in to doing the work than when you go into a prison, which in some ways actually feels intuitively and obviously true because when someone's met their wit's end, they're probably more likely to be open to the work. And there's more of a safety net or someone hasn't really hit that spot where it's like, this really isn't working sometimes in at a corporate organization. So anyway, I'll, I'll slow it down a little. This is, this is a little bit of a setting the table. I wanted to, I think a good entry point into this is that the family dynamic for a lot of people, the trauma that someone's been through that is such that they would commit a, a violent crime or rob a bank or insert any of the things that would get someone to be behind bars. They weren't born that way. They, they were probably really wounded and traumatized as a child. And so when I reflect on my own family dynamic, I think mom, dad, if you're listening, I was actually raised in a super nurturing, loving household. And these were like super, super lowercase T traumas that were circumstantial and that they were not my baseline. My baseline was I'm nurtured and I'm free to explore whatever activities I want to explore. And we love you unconditionally. And any well-meaning parent, I think, doesn't give the child exactly what they need. So I didn't get exactly what I needed to be nurtured. So the reason my heart goes so into the work that you're doing in prisons is that the reason that they're there is, is almost an inevitability in some way because of the trauma and the brutal pain that they have been through in their life. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about how, how you came to that realization that this work really belongs in a healing way behind bars and that this is going to make a really big impact for people who've been through a lot in their life. Yeah. Hmm. I got invited to prison to teach the Enneagram and I was a brand new Enneagram teacher. I had one class going on in my living room and another one that was going on in a church. I didn't have any real experience and I honestly had not unpacked my whole childhood. Hmm. So I I didn't I didn't really know what I was getting into. And that's kind of a lot of a lot of times I say yes to something, not really feeling not knowing a whole lot, but if I have a conviction about how how right something feels, I will take a step in that direction. And so I think the idea from what I knew about the Enneagram that there's this this systemic sy systematic way that we can understand our, not just ourselves, but all of the people around us and in a way that gives us more compassion for ourselves and for other people, like, uh, duh, of course, I want to bring that into the into a prison. And I had all my preconceived ideas about prison and what that was. And then when I got there, I realized, whoa, there is so much that I could learn from people who have really 
been, like you said, at their wit's end who now are at a place where they want to heal. And I don't think that I had gotten to that place inside of myself. And a lot of people were projecting onto me, like I had already done all of this and I was going to be the solution for them. But really it was, it was a lot of reciprocity. People were doing the work real time and showing me that and inviting me into a deeper place inside of myself. Hmm. Yeah. What did that look like for you or what has that? I know it's a, it's an ongoing process. Like what is the, what is the work that has helped you not become someone who learned the Enneagram and then I'm going to teach it to these other people. Like I am in this journey too. What, what's that been like for you? Humbling, sometimes humiliating because I, I want I, I want so much to have integrity. This is my version of yours, like wanting everybody to belong, but not belonging yourself. I want so much to have integrity and to do good in the world that I can forget that part of the essential quality of type one is goodness. And that's, that's in me without doing anything. And that's inherent. It's one of my qualities. But when I am not in, I'm not present, I can start to feel like, I got to earn my way. I got to do more, do more, do more. So, you know, it's true what you say that these, these personalities are, they are so, so interesting to hear the Enneagram when we're new to it and then hear a set of characteristics and say like, wow, that's, that's me. Actually, that's not us. That's Mm -hmm. the, the structure that we created around us. It's the imitation of who we really are. So we have this nurturing or not so nurturing environment, right? And our temperament comes into, interacts with that temperament of our parent. And if they really see us, if they really get us, then I, I would be more of that goodness and you would be more of that wholeness. And when that doesn't happen perfectly, we get this idea that it's not okay. I'm going to, I'm not consciously, unconsciously, we shut down our hearts. And when we do that, we still have to keep going, right? So when our hearts are shut down, the imitation of those essential qualities, that's the ego. And so when we, I, when we see the personality described and we, we say, oh, that's, that's me. That's what I do. And it's sort of, but it's not the all of me, right? Yeah, I'm the person who is observing the behaviors, this box of behaviors that I can fall into. And that's the prison that you're describing. So there's a, and there's a way that we perpetuate that and we recreate that over and over again in our into our adulthood. And this is the compassion piece that is so important that many people forget that there was a prison made for us when we were little that we didn't pick. And and it's not really anyone's fault because I think people are just doing the best that they can. And when when I really didn't get something, it's hard for me to give it to my own child without actively trying to heal those wounds. So, I mean, my kids, there's a therapy jar in our house. I hope to fund some of their work that they do when they want to unpack what was hard for them in their childhood. There's no There's no perfect road. But I think it's important to include that so all the way back to what you were saying, Mike, about I, you know, I, I work with people in corporations, and I think I don't think that it's any any safer or do I really feel that in prison? If you unpack too much in an environment that's not safe, you genuinely can put yourself at risk, in danger. I think in the in the corporate world, you know, the stakes are not that high. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I think it is interesting, no matter where I teach, people have defenses. We armor up because I don't, if I'm the heart type, I don't want you to see me in a way that I don't want you to see me. And not even just the heart types, right? We we all can have some of that. This vulnerable, sensitive work to be able to, to actually go in and look at what happened to ourselves and start peeling off those different layers. It's courageous, difficult work, no matter where we do it, no matter where we do it. Mm-hmm. So I want to start with, well, not start with, but what I want to look at an example of what what I'm hearing is that every every single person, this doesn't even have to be applied through the Enneagram lens, but every person is inherently something incredible. And we lose sight of that. And then we spend a lot of energy and effort trying to get something maybe out there in air quotes that is that already lives within us. So for your type, goodness would be the quality, right? I'm wondering if you could walk us through a time that you felt like you were hunting for goodness. Like there was a strategy that you had from an egoic place from, I have to go get this thing to get goodness. And when, like what it looked like to realize that and to do the work to reclaim that in some way. Mm -hmm. I mean, dozens and dozens of times every day. So like, let me just sit here and try to think of one. Something that's coming to mind that I think people might relate to for the type one is a, is a, I'm writing right now. I'm doing a lot of writing. So I was reflecting on this. This is an older story, but it really, it really caught in my throat when I sort of put, started to put it down on, on a piece of paper, you know, in the Enneagram is a circle. So it starts with the law of one, meaning we, we're all connected. And this is what we're talking about. But that's that's a easy concept for people to kind of, I think, conceptualize, but it's it's fleeting, right? It's it's so quick when we lose contact with who we really are. And I remember I was raising three boys. And when my youngest was born, my middle son is a type eight, who's the boss, the protector, one of the most assertive types on the Enneagram. And he taught me a lot about, about standing my ground and being loving with, with a boundary because he, he pushed and pushed and pushed. That was part of his personality. And he was figuring out how to regulate that as he grew. I remember once I had my, my little, littlest was taking a nap and he was so my middle son, Quinn, we call him the mighty Quinn. He was so mad that we weren't going where we said we were going to go. And he had to wait and until my little guy woke up and he was furious. He was so, so mad. And I was, I was trying to like, remember all my parenting and, you know, say the right words and active listen to him. And, and with that boy at that age, probably around four or so five, he, he could just go, he could go much further and longer and harder than I could. And I remember, I remember having the intuition just to hug him hard and hold him and let him kind of rail against me. And he was so, so, he went from being so furious to like relaxing a little bit. And I, I said to him, you're so mad and you really want what you want and you can't have it. And he was like, yeah. And and I, I said to him, well, you know, what, what can we do while we're waiting? And in just that little move, giving him some of the agency, some of the autonomy for what would be next, which for body types, pretty important. And he said to me, you could read to me. 
And in that moment, I realized like so tender, all he really wants is me, right? Yeah, he wants to go to the park. He wants to go do the things, but what he really wants is me. And and so of course I you know got closer to him and brought in a book and we sat down and we did what he wanted to do. And I realized with tears in my eyes as I was hugging my boy, like and there were there were moments when I didn't have somebody get me in that way. And there were moments, significant moments where I disconnected from myself. And I've lost your your question, but I'm I'm just wanting to say there wasn't anything I needed to do as a type one. There wasn't something I needed. There was no perfect parenting. The perfect moment was to feel my own heart so that I could feel my boys. And, and when I did, it, it wasn't actually going to the park and it wasn't some perfect words in active listening parenting class. It was just about being. And that is a really hard thing to remember when our personalities are driving us. So now I want to, we're doing this kind of dance back, back and forth between what's, what's personal for Susan and what does this look like in her work? But I imagine that there, there must be really powerful illustrations of what this looks like behind bars and in organizations when you're working with folks, because in my estimation, that's really what we're after all of us, right? We're any strategy or tactic that we have to, to try and accomplish something to me, the end goal is usually I want to be seen, heard, loved. And uh, there's something really primal about being humans is we want our parents, we want mom and dad to hold us, love us, etc. So what I imagine if you go behind bars, that tenderness has been pulverized, maybe is even a word to use to describe just how far removed it might be just this is not acceptable for me to be so tender and gentle, or maybe not even gentle, but like vulnerable and open-hearted. Like that is going to be weaponized. I've learned time and time again in my life that is going to be weaponized against me. I'm going to get hurt if I do this. So in my estimation, the most courageous time to do this is when someone's behind bars because it's their whole life they've been told that's not okay. What does it look like when you are helping someone get in touch or, or having this type of insight when it's probably not been okay for most of their life. And uh, like what becomes possible? I've heard you share really powerful stories about folks who on the inside started to get their sense of self back and are now paying it forward and, and doing the work. And yeah, it, it does it, are you, are you in touch with what, what I'm getting at here? Yeah. And we are going back and forth. I think it's very hard to talk about the work that I do in prison without being in touch with the work that I learned as a new mom and through yeah. parenting. And everything that I'm teaching in the prison class is in some way something that I learned in my parenting work. And, and most especially how to be present to myself so that I can be a more effective parent, partner, or program facilitator. And I think what you're saying is true. I think the, the message that most people get, especially in the carceral system in the United States, is you better shore up by the when you get in there. You you it isn't a safe place. It's a heinous place. It's a it's a cold, uncaring, difficult place, even though there are good people in different places within the prison system, by and large, our system is really, really, don't get me started, like broken. And so it's an uncommon place, I think, for us to come in with to sow the seeds of love that 
we want to sow that to, to come in and the very important thing that we do whenever we get into a prison classroom is to create a container. And the first way we do that is to bring ourselves and those essential qualities that are all around the Enneagram into the forefront and to believe that that's how everybody else wants to show up. And I, I think that's something that I, like you said, I have a hard time not feeling that wholeness, right? That's something that I have a hard time not doing, especially in prison. I, I really find it easy to see the good things about people, even people who maybe are pretty prickly and or ornery, uh, maybe even especially those people, because I, I know that there had to be a lot that came before that. So I can think of just thinking about type eight personality. It's an, it's an easy personality for people to conjure up when they think about prison because type eight is the boss or the protector. And everybody thinks that prison is full of a bunch of eights. It's not. Prison is full of ones and twos and threes and fours and fives and sixes and sevens and some eights, but they're not just that. And I think a lot of people feel like they have to armor up to try to be tougher to, you know, and be more aggressive in order to survive. And I haven't lived in experience of incarceration, but that may be true, but you can't be an eight if you're not an eight, you are some other type. So when people come into the classroom, no matter what type they are, we let people know that it's it's okay to be whoever they are and it's okay to be however they've come with their cynicism or with their curiosity. They could have come just to burn a few hours. They could have come to, to do some deep work. Whatever brought them into the room is okay. And sometimes when people come in, they just sort of circle the, you know, the circle the drain and then they tap out for a while. I have one student that I met when I first went to San Quentin way back in 2015, who is a type eight. And he he took whatever I was doing back in 2015, which is not the same curriculum I'm delivering now. And he he got something of it. He knew he was an eight and and he and he he didn't come back, but I would see him again here and there and over the years. And every once in a while, somebody would mention his name. And I would say, if you see him, you know, tell him I said, hi. And I recently reacquainted with this guy and I, I can't even describe what it is. It might be some of my affection that I have for my own type eight son. But when I, I see him, I just let him know, you know, you could come back and you could, you could explore things again. And this time he said, whatever, whatever you did in that first class, it really made me feel like it was okay. And that's a big admission for someone like him to, to say, and, and I know that what he's talking about is he felt the field of love that we created. That's it's, it is Enneagram prison project. It's no doubt the Enneagram is incisive system, but what we're actually doing is creating a space where there is love. And that's been so absent for so many people for so long. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things I know that you love to do is is dream into the future that we're creating. And you said, like, I don't even get me started on the way that our system is broken in so many words. But I, I would love to hear you talk about what you would envision an ideal, like if you were to draw up your own system of how we could make prisons actual healing centers that are restorative and bring people back in touch with their wholeness to invoke that word again. I'm sure any grand prison project is a, is a huge part of this, but what is, what does that look like to you? What, like what, what could we do to create that type of environment where people are healing and getting back in touch with themselves? 
Yeah, I mean, I I love the question. I think every single person that's part of the carceral system would have to be invited in to do this work. The people who are keeping the systems in place from a, a place of of privilege and power, they're also hurting. They may seem to be benefiting from one way or another, but they're not. And and it's it's all people are are oppressed when we're participating in a system like this. And I don't mean to make make it the same because it's not. So we have correctional officers and I don't feel like their job ought to be to correct. I think their 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 role ought to be to care. And I've gone and spent other times in other other prison systems in, in Norway is very, very inspiring. And I remember asking officer in Norway, you know, why he didn't carry a weapon. And he looked at me like I was crazy. Like, what a crazy question, because <laughs> he said, if I need a weapon in order to make somebody do something, then what are they going to be like when they get back out into normal society? And that's that's a very good point. We We just don't even have a mindset that can allow for his sensibility here in the U.S. So I think that there's another hurting population are the correctional officers who probably come from a lot of places where they didn't feel empowered. And now they're in a place where they have to overpower in a system that supports that kind of oppression. And these are good people, too, who have had a lot of things happen to them. So I would really invite the Enneagram into the world of the people who are correcting and air quotes to they can so they can start caring and understanding where they disconnect because it isn't the only way to do prison the way we do it here in the US there are other options and there are much better models yeah so that's, that's exa- and that, and that's amazing and and that's actually one of the things i wanted to pick your brain on is like who is is there a country or a continent that is modeling the I don't want to use superlatives like the best, but maybe the, the healthiest representation of, of what could be. I think that Scandinavia and the Norway models, those are a lot of where I draw my inspiration. I've been, I've toured some prisons inside of Denmark. We work in Belgium and France, and there there are much gentler ways of doing of incarcerating people. And yet they're still prisons. I don't want to make it seem like they're they're not, but Right now, actually, San Quentin is adopting the Norway prison model, and there's a lot of money coming into that from right uh, from Gavin Newsom. And so, I have some optimism there that there's if there's resources that are being put into something, then that's a big part of how the needle needs to move. And it isn't only about building structures; it's about what are the things that are underlying those structures, just like we're talking about personality structures. If you if you only look at the, the structure on the outside, you don't actually understand what's driving it. So I I don't know a better tool than the Enneagram to, to drive the kind of culture change that wants to happen. And it really needs to happen with all of the people who are in it. And I think it's starting. I hope that I see a lot of it in my lifetime. I'm, I don't plan on dying anytime soon, and but I think it's going to take another, another few decades, really, because there's so much that has to break down before we can rebuild that. And I think about yourself when, or I can think about myself when, when I am being invited to look at something that's not working. What do we do? We armor up more, right? Because we know this is coming. Even if we're signing ourselves up for the class and we're going in to try to change things, there's still an armoring up because it's all that we know. So that's a colossal, you know, 
colossally bigger thing to talk about systemic change. And I am the idealist on the Enneagram. I, I feel like it's possible, but it's going to take a lot of us. It's going to take a lot of us. Hmm. I, I feel like it's possible too. And I, if, I don't know if this is an area that you are, or a terrain that you're willing to explore here, but I, I think about how there is enough and enoughness around lots of different areas uh, societally that we have enough resources, we have enough goodness to feed everyone, to love everyone. And it, it actually doesn't feel super far out there, but there are all these different systems are, while probably set up with at least somewhat good intentions, that there's the healthcare system is not really working and, and the, the prison system is not really working. I mean, climate change, like, uh, capitalism in, in a lot of ways is extractive and is it's seeming to serve people at in a certain level in, in as much as accumulation of things and resources. But I think it's contributing to the, the planet really being damaged. And so I say all this to, to get at what are, what are some ways that you look at what, what's your hope for the way that these systems can be more regenerative and less Unitive is one word, extractive, destructive, like the, all these systems are, in my estimation, are colliding. And COVID, COVID highlighted this. And in some ways, it actually brought me hope. But yeah, what, what are some ways that you look at the way that systems could be more regenerative and supportive for what's for the greatest good of all instead of what we have right now? Mm-hmm. I, I think that all of it, uh, going back to the law of one is is connected. I, I used to feel like, well, somebody else can save the environment, right? I'm working on the prison system, which is such a separate mm-hmm. cutoff way to think about it. And it took me a minute to really understand that I was I was perpetuating that by believing it in that way. And I have some dear friends who are very big environmental activists, and they are deeply connected to themselves and helping the people who want to save the planet to be in touch with the parts of themselves that are cut off so that we can do a better job of that. And I know that when I care about me, I care about what's happening globally, environmentally, and I care about what how we're we're incarcerating human beings, all of that comes from that, like that connectivity, that, that thing that I probably felt around the dinner table growing up. Right. And I think I, I'm a very black and white person in my personality. In a lot of ways, parts of me sometimes would just like to burn it down and start from scratch. And I don't think that's the way that we, we ought to go. I think we ought to recognize that there are some really sage souls, even in the prison system. The current warden of San Quentin is one of those people. And he came into a program that we were just graduating back in January. I didn't know him. I introduced myself to him and he said, I'm a six. And look at that, like the warden picking a type and and owning it. And then as we've gotten to know him, he really is the, the essential qualities of the six, which are apparent when when we know him he's he's 
deeply committed to how we heal the social fabric by bringing in his own sort of awakeness and paying attention to where things are unfair or or unsafe. That's sort of like the filter that the six can come from. And if we have conscious people who are in charge of a lot of things, then they can make room for so much to happen. He, and and he he came to a little tea that we had after that gathering. And I, I don't think he would mind me saying this thing. So it's really beautiful about him. He said, you know, I had a hard day today in prison and we can all just make up what that means. He didn't elaborate on all of what that meant. And, but he said, I, I needed to go someplace today where good things were happening. And so we have to remember that the people who are in charge, I've been sitting in on a bunch of board of parole hearings and I had a bunch of ideas about what those, what those were like. And what I'm finding yesterday, I sat on, in on one with two people who are like, spent many, many minutes talking to the person in front of them who was not found suitable, by the way, even after many decades of incarceration. And they were on his side. They were helping him to see these are the steps, like they couldn't have said it more clearly. These are the things you need to do. This is the healing you have not yet gone gotten to. And these are the things that we see that you're already doing. There are good people in the system, in the system. So we need to find each other and come together and be willing to say the the real things to the people who are not and let those folks fall away so that something different can happen. Hmm. Hmm. I have goosebumps based on, I mean, a lot of the things you've been sharing, they've been really moving me. And it does help to remember I, where, where I'm going to go with this is, and I've heard you speak a lot about green lights and that terminology, it resonates with me. Like, I, I love the idea of following green lights and, and tuning into where my green lights are leading me. And I think what, what I'm hearing in, the, in what you're describing is that based on experiencing a bunch of different things, you're able to expand your total worldview. Like I had this idea of what a prison warden was, and then I sat in on a conversation with him and got to know him and that shifted everything for me. And it seems like a through line of your life that you have just, you followed these green lights and experienced new things that have broadened your perspective and awareness. And the question behind this is what does a green light look like for you personally, as, as someone who orients more maybe towards gut and instinct, what, what's a green light feel like for you? Mm, that's a cool question. You know, earlier when you were asking me about when do you see your, I forget how you asked it, but when do you see your personality? It's like the opposite of that. You know, when I'm not efforting, when I'm not thinking I already know, when I'm when I'm not making a bunch of assumptions and putting all this mental energy into a plan and then getting there and realizing it's not any of those things, like the absence of all of that is what allows me to feel into what the green light actually is. And it's, it's these different examples that I'm already peppering into our conversation that it's a willingness to change my mind. It's a willingness to let my heart be impacted. I don't know so many things. I've been teaching in prison for 15 years, but I'm in one sets of classrooms, right? I'm teaching, I'm teaching one curriculum and, and there are so many other things going on. But a green light, like I, I said, I, I see that California in particular is poised to really look at how we're how we're 
how we're doing things. And I think at the same time, looking at how we're dealing with homelessness, because mm-hmm. when people get out, they're so vulnerable to being part of another systemic problem. And we have to look at the whole thing. We have to look at where we put our money, who's profiting, how to how to balance it out, and how do we really care about people? We have to look at how we're, our, our school systems are generating these pipelines where people, if we unpack what happened to people, there were many, many red lights and things that were going on when they were small, and we have to show up in those spaces too. So I guess a green light for me, a gut type is being able to feel my own instincts and to, as a type one, be willing to say something that is a bit disruptive. I'm like you, I'm kind of conflict avoidant. I don't like it. And I I lean into the eights who have that reputation. Mm-hmm. I want to be willing to say things that feel true, to admit to when I'm being too careful and knock that off. And for you as a type nine to be willing to do, you know, your own version of that, to say the thing that will allow you to be connected to yourself. Nines are some of the most, you know, the strongest people on the whole Enneagram. And nines are often the people who are protecting the the folks inside the programming where we want to do it, right? There's green lights. Green lights are different for all the different nine types, but they they come from the same thing as like to be really present to our open hearts so that what wants to come through can. Mm-hmm. I In my estimation, one of the ways that we can be more receptive to what a green light feels like within us is to take care of ourselves. And so what does that look like for you? How do you, and, and I'll, I'll throw this in here too. In pre-screening for the conversation, I, I always ask what would make this conversation a memorable one for you and what would make this a home run? And essentially you said we would drop into presence and, and really be here together. And to me, it's that's kind of the same thing. It's like, how can I take care of myself in such a way that I am available for life to happen through me, maybe is a way to put it. How do you take care of yourself? Yeah, that's an important question for all of us, isn't it? I, I feel like I'm getting a lot better at that. I have a I live in, in the middle of a very steep hill and I get up every morning and I walk very vigorously to the top of it. And sometimes I can even run. And I have a stretching regimen that I do. I care about what I eat. I think about what I'm putting into my body and I fall off the wagon and I get back on. I keep important people close to me. I try not to feel like I have to be in current with everybody in my life, which is a social trap I can fall into, but to to lean into my close-ins and let them love me and go to people when I when I'm telling myself a shitty story so that I can knock it off and they can remind me of my of the goodness that I can't see I draw close to my my children and I feel I take stock in the things that I've done good enough and all that's in front of me I haven't I don't know if I'm answering that question but that's yeah. just what it comes to me it's beautiful and I in my estimation and based on the preparation I've done for this conversation I would guess that being connected to spirit and spirituality is is probably a part of that for you as well and spirituality is this word that I had this massive aversion to for almost all my life. And I actually think that it's, it's probably central to me feeling like I am in my current state. Like if I'm connected to something bigger than me, then life just feels a lot easier. And I would, I would say being connected to something bigger than me is one way to define spirituality. So 
How would you describe your spiritual life? I'm very close to what you just said. I had a Catholic upbringing, and then I was, I called myself a born again Christian for a long time. And then I went away from all names and labels and could have called myself anything, a, a Buddhist or a whatever. I've just gotten to a place of deep appreciation for how many different things there are, how many systems and how many religions. And I, I relate and take so much from so many of them. And I don't even know so many more, but I feel like there is one source, one spirit, one God, one divine that connects us all. And I don't really care what you call it. I feel like it's a, it's a sacred moment when we can all drop into that, not caring so much what it's called. And I've always been a seeker. And I, I can see that being able to stop efforting when I, when I'm not efforting, I think that which I call source can come through and do what it wants to do. And that the essential qualities are really pointing us back on this map of the Enneagram to when that's occurring. And it can be just, it can just take a moment to allow that to happen. It can take just another moment for us, for us to get in the way of it. And so I want, that's what I mean. That's what I meant by what kind of conversation that I want to have with Mike today. I'm, I'm, if I start to think about it, I think, God, have we been all over the map? I'm like, not quite sure if I, and then I think that who cares, right? That wasn't the point. The point was there are, there are many good questions and topics that you've opened up to and that you invited me to open up to that feels like a real gift. And I appreciate this conversation. It's a spiritual one for me. Yeah, me too. And and who knows in a kind of a linear mind how, how it might map out, but I, I'm certainly enjoying the hell out of it. So I'm sure that there's going to be lots of insight and downloads for, for anyone who's tuned in. And even if that's not the case, this has been incredible joy for me. So we haven't explicitly spoken about the human potentialists. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you want to say. I mean, I, in a lot of ways, they're they're largely connected. And everything that we've spoken about probably applies in some way to THP. But if there's anything that you wanted to say about THP that we haven't already in some way spoken about that. I just want to make sure I gave the opportunity for that too. Yeah. Thanks for asking for people who don't know a lot of people over the years have approached Enneagram prison project and me and, and said, goodness, we, this curriculum could be in this place or that place. And we agree, you know, I think it could be in, in a lot of different spots and EPP here in the US, we are a 501c3 nonprofit and our vision and mission are very clear and they fall under this very, you know, specific umbrella. And we're, we're really working within jails and prisons to help people to understand why they do what they do using the Enneagram to inspire transformation. And it's on both sides of the bars. So since 2021, but really over the last decade, I've been feeling into what the, the rest of this side of the bars could be doing with the Enneagram that EPP taught us, the, the curriculum that we learned inside of jails and prisons is what we are using in the human potentialist to bring the Enneagram every place else. So the human potentialist is helping to democratize the Enneagram and we're doing that in lots of different ways. I have always had a corporate practice teaching the Enneagram in places 
that are not prison related, but I always have felt like a, a human bridge trying to help people to understand that this way that I get locked up in my personality when I'm running an organization is not unlike the way that I get in trouble with myself for my personality and getting locked up and put inside bars. Mm -hmm. And so THP has a, a few new offerings that are coming out. We're, we're offering something called Nine Faces of Potential, which is a, a deep dive into each of the different nine types with a recording and a panel. And um, we're going to be working with people who would like to explore their own type and to be in coaching, session, coaching sessions with people who are the same type or people who share the same affinity to life or to social structures and we're just getting started. So this is, I mean, one of the threads of this conversation that's most standing out to me that feels particularly true in this moment is we're all made of the same stuff. Anything that's useful in their air quotes is useful out here and it's a, it's applicable across all people. So that's, I think one question I didn't ask you, but that feels evidently true in this moment is I, I was going to ask at some point, what is it about the Enneagram, this technology, this tool that you feel is so helpful? And I think it's just a window into who we all are and that we're all interconnected and, and oneness comes up again. And so this, this feels like a beautiful bow on what's been an incredible conversation. I have a couple more things that I want to ask you, but before that, is there anything else that we haven't spoken about so far today that you would like to bring into the conversation now? I just like the way you you just put that, that the Enneagram doesn't discriminate across gender, age, race, language. It really doesn't care. And yet there are these big differences that do differentiate us that are important to pay attention to. And I think it's the both and of that. The Enneagram is not trying to reduce us all to a type or to, to the exact same thing, but to appreciate the dynamic way that we come together and an honoring of the difference and the the through line that connects us, with, which is our humanity. Mm -hmm. Well, I wholly endorse that. Mm. So, yeah, just a couple more questions that I have for you. These are more rapid fire in nature, but you can take as long as you would like to answer the questions. One that I ask pretty much every single conversation, what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Oh, uh, I think all of my family knows I'm going to talk about my favorite cat. <laughs> and such a simple, a simple thing. I have three cats and I hope they're not all listening, but I have one in particular and every night she knows when I'm going to bed and she always finds her way in the room. It's, it's, it's so silly, but the cats must have personalities too. And she just really has a sweet spot. I love my cat. Hmm. What Enneagram type is your cat? I knew you were going to say that. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They do have personalities. She is, she, and you know, she's very reasonable. And she's, she's, she doesn't, she's not a pushy cat. She's just, she's very respectful. I don't know what, what type am I making her out to be? I'm not going to answer the question, but <laughs> she's, um, she's perfect. That's great. That's, uh, <laughs> I guess my, uh, my crappy sense of humor was, was being foreshadowed and the fact that you knew it come that you knew it was coming. I'm, uh, <laughs> I've got to work on my jokes a little bit. <laughs> So I, this is one that I've been thinking, there's, there's two things that I think a lot about, well, there's many things I think a lot about, but I've been thinking a lot about success and enough. 
what those words mean culturally for us and, and what's my relationship to them. So I'll start with success. When, when you hear the word success, is there a person that comes to mind that is emblematic of what it means? And what, what does success mean to you? I feel like maybe good enough is my equation with success because I have a very high bar and I don't use that word a lot for myself or for the project. But when you ask me if the first things that come to mind are our ambassadors, the people who learn the Enneagram on the inside, who fell in love with the Enneagram and really maybe for the first time fell for themselves and who are now in so many positions of leadership guiding the project. We have two of our ambassadors, one who's on the the board of directors here in the US, one who's on the board in Canada. We have ambassadors who've been on faculty who are aspiring guides. Like they're they're incredible. And those are definite success stories. I also say that successes can be just such small victories, right? Just in I sometimes and maybe you experience this, Mike, but just by recognizing your own pattern as a type nine, now you have like a major amount of understanding in your awareness. And that's massive success for you and for, aren't you about to have a baby? That's right. I am yeah, about to have a baby. As, a, as being a daddy, right? Just the the way in which you can include yourself more and make space for your child. Like it's a huge knowing. So uh, successes run the gamut. And sometimes I think like if I died tomorrow, <laughs> when I feel like I, I did enough and, and I, I don't want to die tomorrow because I don't feel like I have done all I want to do. I want to live to be old and to look back with some wisdom, but I do feel really, really happy with where EPP is and who I get to work with and what we are poised to go do in the world. Hmm. It's amazing. And I, I think about that question a lot too. And and I can gratefully say that I'm, I totally feel unfinished. I will forever be unfinished. And if I died tomorrow, I feel like I did a pretty good job of being alive on this planet. And that'd be a cool thing for a lot of people to feel that. So I'm glad that you feel that way. I, which leads right into my next question. I love asking people who've already done such incredible things, who are such incredible beings and people like you, where do you feel most unfinished? That's a really good question. I think that as a as a body type, right? As a that instinctual triad eight nine one that we started our conversation with, that the place where I I have the most wisdom and knowing is the place where I get most locked up. Mm. And, and that's the paradox for all the body types. And so I know that that's still my growing edge. I didn't, for example, want to prepare for this conversation with you. I don't want to try to get ready for any more. I want to be able to live in my body, inhabit my own feet and trust that that's enough. And I, I'm working on it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you and me both, Susan, <laughs> you and me both. I, I, I wonder how that informs the way that you look because you're, I'm a fellow seeker too. I've heard you say that word many times and as a seeker, I think sometimes there's my come from when I'm endeavoring in something new is the most important part of it. And what I mean by that is if I am reading a new book or wanting to learn a new concept or hiring a new coach or whatever the thing is from this place of scarcity or lack that I will be full 
if and when this next thing happens, then I can find myself in a bit of trouble. But if I come from this place of I'm good as I am, I'm an amazing coach, I'm an amazing interviewer, there's nothing I need to do. And it would feel really good to learn about this thing. That's where I find that I have the most success. So I, I wonder how you look at that in, in your life. Like, I don't want to show up needing to prepare for this conversation, but also what would be a nourishing way to maybe prepare or to learn something new? Like, how do you, how do you look at bringing in new concepts from this place of I'm good as I am and yeah, I can default to feeling so unfinished and like there's so much I lack and don't know and can't and shouldn't and et cetera, et cetera. So I didn't want to prepare and I didn't feel like I was preparing by listening to a few other podcasts that you did. It made me feel more connected to you and it made me look forward to whatever conversation we're going to have, for example. So sometimes maybe it's a, it's kind of a reframe, but I, I know what overdoing looks and feels like. And I, I, don't want to, I don't want to do that anymore in my life. And I, I hope I'll, I'm always a seeker and I'll always be learning and relearning and re-remembering things about the Enneagram. And I'm so glad that by and large, it doesn't change. You know, it, it is something that I can use as a reference point so that I can have a touchstone of something that gives me a map back to, to the best parts of me and the best parts of Mike Trugman and all the people that we encounter, I, I, it's the both and, right? I'm, I'm always going to be looking for the next application of what I learned in jail and prison and how that can inform what I do in the rest of the world. I feel like I've been invited into understanding how to be and taking all the elements of what I learned in my, from my kids and being a parent in that parenting class in jail, in prison, and put them all together. And our curriculum is like a life curriculum of how to take something that's a bit esoteric and honestly hard to grasp and put it into what does showing up inside of Susan Olesic look like? And how can that look like inside of Mike Trugman and all the other people among us? That's what I'm doing. And I'm always going to be on that edge. Hmm. Right on. So just a, a couple more things I wanted to go through with you. One, I'll make sure that I definitely connect or link to rather in the show notes, the Enneagram Prison Project and the Human Potentialist. Are there other, I know that you're on LinkedIn. I don't know how active you are on LinkedIn, but are there other places you would invite folks to connect with you? I think all the social media for both the humanpotentialists.com and the enneagramprisonproject.org are places that you can find me and and all my peeps. I love the question. Thank you. Of course. And I'll make sure to link to all of the places on social media in the show notes as well. And uh, the final question that I ask in every interview, Susan, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I'm eager to hear, what does it mean to Susan? To live a meaningful life. Living a, a meaningful life for me is being as true as I can be in the moment to what I know in the moment. And when I do that, everything that comes comes next is is there for for me and for my own unfolding and for everyone that's connected to me. I I don't think it gets any more meaningful than to to live in in the truth of our being and to meet other people in the truth of theirs. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you for living in the truth of your being. And there's, as I named before we jumped on, you have a, a gentle, compassionate, loving energy that when I first encountered your voice, when I listened to your TED Talk, when I listened to you on podcasts, I felt like this is a kindred spirit that I cannot wait to talk to, who's doing work that I really admire and whose being I really admire. Like there's, there's something about your presence that is naturally inviting into you're good exactly as you are. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that lightly. Uh, it, it really meant a lot to have this conversation with you. So thank you so much for being here today in your being. Thank you, Mike, for receiving me and including me and for seeing me. I feel really honored to be one of your guests. And I, I love how you invite everybody to honor a different nonprofit or philanthropic work that's happening in the world that feels like like a reflection of your own soul, which is what I said when, when you said those kind words to me in the beginning, that everything outside of us is some reflection. And I, I look forward to knowing you and getting to do more of this work together as we go and grow. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Me too, Susan. And bringing awareness to your organization and a lot of other organizations has been a really meaningful extension of what matters to me and really realigning and, and committing to the the values that I espouse and the person I want to be. So it is my absolute pleasure. I'll make sure that I invite listeners in the introduction to this episode to, to donate to the incredible Enneagram Prison Project organization. And to everyone who's listening, I'm wishing you a wonderful rest of your day or evening. Take good care and lots of love. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose.